is a podcast that watch Christmas. Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of If This Is a Podcast, Then Watch Christmas. Today, it's my enormous pleasure to speak to Paul Rothwell, who is most famous for being my wife's boss for three and a half years, um, which is how I, I met him a few times uh, during, that, those, uh, during those years. Went to one of his birthday parties, I think. And he was always a really lovely bloke. Um, but beyond that, clearly, there's a bit more to him. Uh, he was one of the three partners in Gorgeous with Chris Palmer and Frank Budgeon. I mean, Chris started on his own and then it became something that was Chris and Frank's and Paul's um, in about 97, 98, I think. So at that point and ongoingly for a good 10 years, it was one of the best, if not the best, production company in the world. Every great script on planet Earth found its way to Gorgeous's uh, fax machine or probably email inbox at that point. And um, there's no argument at all that Gorgeous was the gold standard for production companies all over the world. Their work won at least two Cannes Grand Prix, DNAD Black Pencils. Um, one of their directors was Director Guild of America, uh, DGA and Commercials Director of the Year, if not two. I think Peter Thwaites also won it. Um, Paul's probably best known also for his, really for his association with Frank Budgeon, um, who was probably the preeminent commercials director, I'd say, in the history of advertising from the UK and possibly in the world. Um, you know, there, there was just an incredible run of... Paul, Paul explains that he generated about three and a half ads a year on average, and often they would just win award after award after award. So um, that was incredible. So Paul started um, in advertising at BMP's production department in the 80s where Frank was a copywriter and uh, would-be director and so there was a sort of association there um, and you'll hear all these stories and how all this happened but then um, they they worked together at Paul Whelan Films where Frank kind of started his uh, career as a as a sort of actual director with a production company behind him and that was great and then Paul spent a year as, uh, running Ridley Scott's Associates uh, production company where, of, among other people, he took on Chris Cunningham. Um, so that was pretty interesting. And then Gorgeous happened. So Chris has a sort of magnetic connection with Frank Budgeon. And um, Frank, as amazing as he is and uh, amazing as the work he's done, um, Paul was often the producer behind that work or the production company where it happened. So there's a lot of stuff there. And I think Paul, you know, in all his modesty, would like to point out that he is just one small cog in a much larger machine of creating amazing advertising but you can't kind of deny or get away from the fact that he's often there when a brilliant ad happens or has happened so this is actually in two parts because we ended up talking quite a long time up to the point where gorgeous began and then i did a second episode for an hour which is um, kind of gorgeous onwards so enjoy this the beginning and then please have a listen to part two thanks Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? Good, good. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, nice to hear from you too. Um, uh, I was going to, the way I normally have these conversations at the beginning is asking people uh, how and why they got into advertising in the first place. And your story might be production rather than advertising for, for all I know. But um, can you give us a bit of an insight into how it all began? Yeah, it, in my case, it is advertising actually. And um all my life, I'd only ever wanted to be one thing, which was an architect. And um, and I went and studied architecture. And I did three years, a first degree. But about two years into it, I suddenly thought, I don't want to be an architect. I had um, I just suddenly realized, much as I loved the course and lots of things about it, I just didn't want it as a career. So then I looked around, and, and that was strange because... I'd never thought about it before, and I looked around, and um, advertising looked interesting. So I applied for a job in advertising, and um, as an as an account man originally, and um, got got offered a job, and that's that's where I began. So where did, where did you get offered a job? So that was at FCB. Um, in fact, I, I remember I got offered a few jobs. One was a little company called Sarchi's. I think there was O and M, and 
FCB. And at the time, I liked FCB the most. And then from accepting the job to joining four months later, the creative director, head of account management and the managing director all left. <laughs> so I joined a slightly, slightly different agency, um, which I always thought was a good thing because I, I stayed as an account manager for two years and realized that the account man job I didn't particularly like, but I, I liked that bit over there, which was the TV side, and it made me realise that's that's what I was really interested in. And what, and what year was this? So that was in I joined FCB in 1981, and then left in '83. Yeah, and I, I I know what you mean about the account management part. I did I did years. Um, work experience sorry a month's work experience when I was at university and I didn't even know what the departments were so they put me in account management and I thought oh my god this is a job I really don't want to do and I kept sneaking up to the creative floor so we must have gone through the same kind of thing whereby you were looking with envious eyes at production yeah it was funny there was um when I when I was at university and couldn't decide what I wanted to do I had a chat with my dad who lived in the Caribbean and um I mentioned that I was interested in advertising. He said, oh, I know somebody who's in advertising. Um, and it turned out this guy had been on holiday in Barbados where my dad lived. And his kids had got playing with my stepbrothers and sisters on the beach. And then the parents had got friendly. And so my dad and this guy. And this guy had just set up an agency in London at the time called Bartle Bogle Hegarty. And um, Mr. Hegarty and my dad <laughs> got on quite well. And dad said, I think he's something to do with advertising. Why don't you give him a call? So so I wrote to him and he said, oh, um, come, and, come and do a week's work experience in the holiday if you can. So I did. And that was great. And I, and I mentioned that because I've still got the list. There, was a, there were about 15 people in the agency at the time. It, it had just really just set up been going for a few months they had Levi's and they had Audi their, their first two accounts I think and um and I've got a list still of the 16 people who worked there and what they did or what I thought they did and um there was a student placement creative there at the time as well called Rosie Arnold and um I think she's still with BBH as far as I know but there we are uh, yeah, she. I think she was there for a very long time. Then, then moved over to AMV. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe five years ago. I don't know. But yeah, she she was a, a kind of lifer. And in fact, uh, Dave Dye interviewed her on his podcast and talked about yeah. those early years. So um, that's interesting. And also, I, I spoke to Stephen Gash recently, who was there definitely a few years after that. But but he was, I think, the twenty fifth employee. So wow. Uh, wow, early BBH times. So from the did, did you manage to get into the production department at FCB then? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't try to. I didn't apply. It, it wasn't my idea of. Um, well, it wasn't where I, I didn't want to work there because I thought people would see me differently if I changed from yeah. account man in the same agency, and I, I didn't want anything to do with that. Um, I got a job at BNP, and um, that was that was great. In fact, I quit my job to do up, do up a flat, and I did that for six months. And, in, and during the process. Um, they gave me work experience at BMP, and the week there became a month, and then I had to leave because I was wanting to do up the flat. But when I finished, they said, um, you can have a job, which was literally just happened like that. So that was rather wow. nice and, and <laughs> rather, rather convenient. So this is early, mid-80s BMP? Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in 83. So John Webster was there, Tilby and Leaves were the creative directors. John was didn't wasn't an acting creative director he sort of he was he just did his own thing really um and then frank budgeon worked in the office next to john and um barnaby in fact roger shipley was head of tv at bmp at the time and barnaby spurrier was one of the producers there and then barnaby took over and it was barnaby who said come and work for us full time Right. So, I mean, um, obviously Frank's name is going to come up a bit later on, I imagine, at one, one or two points. Um, did, did you know him then? Were you friends? Um, I did. I, well, funny enough, even before I joined BMP, I knew of Frank because at FCB, one of the secretaries who worked in the account management pool, um, she used to, every day, her boyfriend would come and collect her in his open-top car and she'd always talk about my Frank, who it turned out was was that frank um so so when i joined bmp i sort of i had a a name to say hi from 
yeah. which was quite funny. Uh, Almost like you, you you were magnetically bound to Frag in yeah, some weird funny, way, isn't it? It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so so did you say you you didn't you weren't in the production department there either, or you were? Yes, I was. You so that, I joined BMP in right. the production department. Okay. So um, obviously, you know, with people like John Webster and indeed Frank, there's some pretty amazing TV work going on. Are you aware of? Because um, I know this happens for creatives as well, but are you aware you're in one of the best agencies in London, if not the world, and you're making great slash classic TV commercials, or is that not a consideration? I think I think you I think you're aware it's a good place, yes, and and you quickly pick up on you know everyone's very proud of the work they do, and um, there's always a, a certain rivalry between agencies, isn't there? Um, so so yeah, we. We um we were very aware. I was aware it's a good place. Yeah, I was. I always felt that as a producer, you were sort of as good as as the work around you. And if if you could align yourself by the best work, then that would always help you in your career. And that was certainly the case with me. And did you um, work directly, say, with John Webster at that time? Funnily enough, I did because John had mostly worked with. Roger Shipley and then Roger sort of took who was producer there and Roger took a step back and for whatever reason John liked me and sometimes John worked with Frank and sometimes John was on his own but mostly I worked with John and Frank there was Ian Ducker and Will Farquhar Um, there was Tony and Kim Tony Davidson and Kim Patworth um, Nick Gill um, Alan Howell Julian Dyer trying to think of all the people but but I most of my because John did a lot of TV I tended to do most of my work with John I guess and, and John and Frank and that in turn was mostly at Park Village with with Roger Woodburn or oh, yeah. occasionally one of the other directors. And so can you give us some examples of some of the, the the commercials that you worked on there as a as a producer? Well when I when I had my month's work experience when I knew really nothing about it and I was just tagging along I remember there was a lot of Webster work and he was doing this new campaign for the Royal Bank of Scotland. And some of those were with Roger Woodburn, which ended up being the, the little pin men, Giacometti pin men. Yeah. And then we also talked to Ridley Scott about it. So there was I, this guy hoping to get into the business, <laughs> sort of wide-eyed as I sat there with Ridley Scott, sort of, I couldn't believe where I was. Um, then I sat in on a Miller Lite campaign, which John had did. Um, it was the Grey Men, which Roger Woodburn shot over about six days. And and I always remember I used to sit there when I didn't have anything to do with my notebook, sort of scribbling. And what I was doing was doing designs for the flat I was going to convert, <laughs> because I, I, by this stage I was meant to be doing that. But it was such a good opportunity. I wasn't being paid, but it's such a good opportunity I stayed on. And um, I remember after the shoot, Barnaby saying, oh, Roger Woodburn really liked you. He could see you were really attentive and making notes of everything he was doing. <laughs> and I, think I felt a bit of a fraud um, if Roger had known what I was sketching. But but anyway, I, I got on very well with Roger during that shoot, which was a, a big help and um, probably one of the reasons why Barnaby offered me a job a few months later. Okay, so you're, you're in uh, a really good agency in, I, I guess, what a lot of people would say was a prime kind of, time for advertising in terms of how it was regarded and probably enjoyed by the British public, um, yeah. particularly BMP, because you know, people like John Webster were amazing at making very popular kind of work. So what was the progression through that? Did, did you end up becoming, you know, rising to the top of that department or, or what, what happened then? No, well, I, I, I remember um, I, Barnaby offered me a job and I, I know it sounds quite casual, but I, I said yes and I wasn't really sure what I was. I assumed I was a well, I wasn't sure if that's an assistant or what. I remember after a couple of weeks saying to him, because somebody had said to me, what What actually are you? And I said to Barnaby, um, I said, it doesn't matter to me, but what should I call myself? And he said, oh, uh, yeah, okay, um, trainee producer. And I said, okay. So I was a trainee producer. And then about a couple of months in, um, there was a campaign for Thorne EMI electrical appliances. And it was a shoot with Len Fulford, and Barnaby was a producer, and I was the trainee producer, if you like. And um, we went to the shoot, and Barnaby said, can you tell the creative team I'm not going to be able to get there 
for the first morning, but I'll be along later. So I did. And they said, yeah, like Barnaby's really going to turn up. But they were right because he never did turn up. So I, I did the whole shoot myself. And then he said, well, look, you may as well carry on and finish it, which we did. And it was voted third most unpopular ad on the air that month <laughs> in a <laughs> done in the, the Sunday Times or something like that. But anyway, it was it was it was one thing where I just was given a bit of um, slack and never really looked back. So quite quickly, I was left to get on with my own stuff, which was you know amazing, really, because because I knew plenty of people had spent years um, being a, being an yeah. assistant. And and at this point, were you eyeing the other side of not the other side of the camera, but the other side of the process from the production side? Not, not really. I do remember at one point in the four years when I was at BMP, because I was there for four years, um, um, Frank and I had a conversation where we said, oh, it'd be nice to have our own company one day, wouldn't it? Because there was Rose Hackney, which was doing incredible work at the time, Hamlet, mm. Cigar and so on. Yeah. And both Graham Rose and John Hackney had been at BMP years before and had left and set up their company. And so we like to think there was, you know, that was there was a, a line and we would do it funny enough when i did then a few years later work with him at Wayland's um for eight eight nine years the two of us never once mentioned doing that although i was then to go on and do it but we'll come to that later yeah so uh i guess if you were there for those conversations you you were part of like understanding maybe frank's process in going from copywriter to director so was that something he always wanted to do and mentioned and did you because I, I think some creatives it comes out of them a little bit more obviously than others where they're going no really ultimately I do want to be a director and I'm, I'm going to bend things in that direction or write scripts that I might be able to direct myself was, was Frank like that at all yeah he was a bit um with with BMP everything was researched more than most places so it, first of all you always made the animatic and to make the animatic you have to storyboard it quite carefully and Webster was a master at that and Frank sort of learned that off Webster so he was always used to storyboarding everything even if it was you know another director obviously was going to direct the film they'd been through the process of storyboarding it and confronting those questions which as a director you're going to confront um he got more and more interested in it and then did want to start directing his own bits. And, um, and he was allowed to do some, some things he wasn't allowed to do, but, um, there was a campaign for the Alliance and Leicester, which he wrote, I think, and, um, Fry and Laurie were the talent in that. And, um, they, this campaign went on for several years and Frank would always write them and, whoever would direct and then Frank said I'd like to direct and I had to broach that with Brian Laurie's agent the problem was that Hugh Laurie also wanted to direct them <laughs> so that became that became a bit difficult and and not surprisingly Frank always won on that score but also not surprisingly I think Hugh slightly resented it and wasn't perhaps as helpful as no, <laughs> as, he, as he could have been occasionally I mean they're both very professional but that was always slightly awkward I thought well it's also interesting because those are you know comedy ads with a, obviously a, a famous comedy duo which is one sort of genre of advertising but um, obviously I, I think some of the work Frank came to be known for later on was not of, of really of that it was a high production value kind of thing so I, I think it's interesting there's he was sort of able to do most things in, in those terms. He did funny ads, but he also did, yeah. you know, um, the high production values or, or even the beautiful things like the, the Tesco babies, um, things like that. So um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that that was coming out as, a, as an obvious thing at that point. But I think, you know, was, was it clear that, that Frank wasn't necessarily, I, I don't know, Graham Rose seems more funny to me. There's, there's more funny yeah. stuff coming out. So there was a certain kind of director he wanted to be. But, you know, with Frank, was it not really like that? I, I don't know. Frank would, I always felt with Frank, even as a writer, he, he would use whatever technique or device he felt was appropriate to the idea. And, and, and he, he did have a huge range. F funnily enough, I always felt he was one of the funniest directors around, even, even later on with his work. He, some, sometimes he'd do something which is really funny, but mostly he wasn't particularly seen as that and yet I thought his stuff was really funny but um but there we are 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you you you've done you've done your four years at this point. You're doing your four years. What what made you leave? I, I'm doing that, and then Frank had started directing or wanting to direct. So obviously, to do those, we had to do it through a production company, and um, Paul Whelan's were willing to do that. And there was a slight initially there was a slight union thing as well. I remember what you you couldn't put the name of the director who was actually directing it on the paper. It had to be the name of the first AD or something, and then. I remember it won an award and Frank was really keen to try and change his name to it, but we agreed that we couldn't. And there was a Tipex saga, I think, on the award entry. <laughs> but um, but so I I got to know Wayland by doing quite a few jobs when I was the agency producer. And if the if the director's working at the agency, obviously the agency producer has a, probably a slightly um, bigger role because they've got the ear of the director more than the production company have. So we developed quite a good relationship, me, Frank and Waylands, over that period. And then they were looking for somebody for Mike Stevenson, who had been with them for about a year and um, offered me the job. And I was very happy to take it. So I left and um, in 1989 and started working there with Mike Stevenson. And um, then Frank was to follow. I think he followed a few years later. Um, yeah, something like that. But I worked with Mike for several years, quite a few years. And so what was that like? Because my memory of Mike's stuff, maybe there's more range, but I keep thinking of those sort of stop motion ones he did for another building society. That were nationwide. Nationwide. That's right. They were fantastic. Wonderful series of stop motion for Nationwide. And I always loved animation coming mm. from the agency. Um, and we did a bit of stop motion with, with Mike and I. I never worked on the Nationwide campaign, unfortunately. Um, but there was some... There was a campaign for the Daily Mail or Mail on Sunday done in the style of Melier, the um, oh, French, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the originators of cinema. And we, we had a fantastic time researching and doing stuff in a Melier style. And um, I could go on about that for half an hour, actually, about <laughs> technical stuff. But anyway. Well, well, Mike was a former creative as well, wasn't he, with, with Derek Apps at Lowe? That's right. And had also been at BMP and had been a prisoner to the to the to the um animatic oh, system right. for that yeah but but he was most famous for his work at Lowe's that's right so so um, and obviously Paul Whelan was the same in terms of having been a creative as well so at that at Whelan's was it ma- mainly former creatives being directed quite quite a few of them were yes um David Garfath was there and he was a he had come through up through the camera department and had been a camera operator and and he turned to directing hugely successfully um, but, um, yeah, and then Vince Squibb, some years later, joined Waylands again, a former writer. Um, there, were, there were also writers not from advertising. So Anthony Minghella was a writer that Paul knew and did Truly Madly Deeply and then started working through Waylands. And um, I did, did some work with Anthony over the years. And, um, oh dear, what's his name? Um, I'm trying to think of... Um, one of the most famous writers the UK's ever produced. Um, oh, Richard Curtis. Yes, Richard Curtis. Richard Thank Curtis. you. That was a there good guess. Um, Richard also directed through Waylands and would right. be around from time to time. Um, and so there, there was a there was a great bunch of directors there who were all mostly of writing backgrounds. So it feels like, and I've, I've been dwelling on this a little bit recently, and I don't want to think like I'm looking back at, this kind of time, I, I didn't join until a few years afterwards, advertising um, through rose tinted spectacles. But um, production's obviously changed a fair bit in in the thirty years in between when you're talking about and and now. But did it feel like a kind of golden age, and did it feel like there was something special happening at that time? Absolutely not. It always felt like the golden age had been ten years before. <laughs> so, so BMP, the famous era, had just passed where they did all the GLC press work and some other famous campaigns. And then advertising production always seemed like it had just, you know, Wayland had actually, Paul set up his company um, out of the ashes of the Alan Parker film company. So Alan Parker had left CDP, set up his company, been hugely successful. Paul had been a creative at CDP, had joined Alan Parker, started directing. Then when Alan went into film, decided to close the company, Paul opened up as Paul Wayland Film Company, and, and with Alan's sad death quite recently, Paul did a, a very nice tribute to him, I saw. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so so you you're there producing for Mike, and did, was it exclusively with Mike? Did you move on to other people? Yes. No, it was for for a couple of years. I think it was exclusively with Mike, and then then they started. I suppose as I became um, a bit more experienced, they started to trust me with other directors. So I did a bit with David Garfath, and then one day I read in campaign that Frank Budgeon was joining Paul Whelan's, and Paul Rothwell would be his producer. And I went, <laughs> oh, that's interesting because I hadn't been told or asked, and um, I thought I was that didn't bother me because obviously I knew Frank and produced with him. I was quite happy, but I thought, has anyone told Mike? Because you know, yeah. but it, that was. That was resolved, but um, yeah. And do, do you think that came from Frank asking, or Paul thinking that'd be a good fit, or? No, I think I think it was just um, felt that with Frank joining, he probably wouldn't be directing that much to start with anyway, and um, I'd still work with Mike, and I'd also work with Frank, and that was probably the start, and then, then that's what happened, and um, then Frank got busier, and I'd also I'd start working with David Garfath and others, so it. It started to share, but I I did most of Frank's for the first few years of, of Frank certainly. And in terms of being a production company producer, because I don't think I've really spoken to many on on this podcast, um, what, what's the process coming from your side of things like? Because I mean, we may get onto this again a little bit later on. The fact that um, you know when Frank was at his peak. Presumably, every great script on the planet was coming through your fax machine. If it was fax machines, then probably an email. Yeah. Um, and so, at this point, are you trying to build him? Are you trying to look for certain things that give him uh, the, the position him as the person he wants to be? Are you a team in that way, and you're thinking we're kind of connected to each other that we've got to kind of do this together? Or, well, how was it? I, th- I, th- I think, first of all, as a producer, I've always seen myself or producer as a catalyst. When I was in the agency, I saw it as a catalyst to try and get the best result between the creative team, um, the production company and and the client. You know, you, you're fulfilling all of those roles. Then the production company, you're the catalyst, if you like, between the agency and the director. You, you're trying to understand the director's vision and help him or her to achieve it. And um, that's how I, how I saw the process, really. Um, there were other bits of question you asked and I've forgotten what they were because I had answers for them. Um, well, it was, I mean, I, I'm thinking a little bit now, you've just made that answer. Like, so when you're talking about the George Melier stuff with Mike, are you as a producer going, I don't know how we achieve this, but I'm going to try and see what the the possible routes to doing it are? Like, is it in camera? Is it like a little set? Is it whatever? And then you've got to work within the budget to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So, so there's the technical side where, as you say, you, you often get a script and you think, I don't know how we're going to do this, and, and neither of you do for sure. But that that's a fun bit because you go out and find out, and there's loads of experts around, and you you speak to people and gradually build up a picture of how to do it, and then how to cost it, uh, and how to realise it. So, it's, for example, jumping ahead some years, we did a Guinness Snails ad, um, and at the time CGI was just about getting to the point where it might be able to achieve these snails racing and the whole ad depended on an authentic race amongst a group of snails and we spent ages trying to work out can we do it in CG can we trust CG do we do it with models do we do it with stop frame and we went down all the routes and looked at endless stuff before finally doing it predominantly CG with obviously models and other things for lighting reference yeah and again jumping forward slightly again i remember that capital radio ad that frank did that was a kind of forerunner of the matrix frozen image thing um and again like you know in taking that on i think when it came out it was to me it was way more visionary than than it seemed to be appreciated to be because when the matrix happened, it was like, Oh my God. And I said, well, that was two or three years ago in that capital radio ad. Um, yeah. and I, I believe it was done with lots and lots of cameras sort of stuck together around the, the thing. But how do you, how do you know that can be achieved? Well, that, that one's actually, I'd forgotten all about that one. And that was a great case of, of, of how it came about. So Robert Savile and Jay Pon Jones, who were at GGT, um, Robert who, and Jay, who then went on to set up Mother, um, they had this script, this idea for Capital. And I'm trying to think of the original script. And it, that wasn't it. And anyway, they came to Frank and they had an idea and they talked. And then they had these another one as well. And they had the line, London static without Capital. And then they wanted frozen 
London. And I'd seen, I'd seen this photographer called Tim McMillan, who lived in Bristol, and he he'd done some test that I'd seen with a homemade camera, which had this sort of movement through a frozen moment in time. And then Michel Gondry had done a music video for the Rolling Stones, oh, which yeah. Yeah. was the same thing, and that was that was done before. The big difference with the Gondry video was that was done inside. Yeah. So it was done with a row of cameras. So you'd have 30 cameras, 25 cameras for 25 frames, and you would trigger them via flash. And that appeared to, so it would capture a frozen moment and appear to track around a frozen moment. But that would only work with flash in darkness inside. That technique didn't work outside. So what we couldn't work out how to do is how to do it outside. Anyway, I spoke to Tim McMillan. And I said, I saw this test you did, which was very scratchy. And um, I said, how did you do it? And we chatted and he came down and met us. And and I said, do you think you could, this is what we've got to do. Do you think you could do it? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, he said I've built it in my head. It's just I've never been able to afford to build the camera. And I said, okay, you know, could you budget it and tell us how much it'll cost? So I remember him and we had hardly any money. We had like 80 grand for the 70 grand for the, for the budget, which which even then wasn't a huge amount, um, he said it'll cost me about four grand to build it and to operate it on the shoot. And I thought, wow, I couldn't believe it. So what it was was it was a long square profile tube, like an aluminium tube, and um, aluminium I think on three sides, and then in the front, um, I can't remember how far apart a frame is in film but if it's say if you take a roll of um 35 mil film and lay it on its side then the gap between each frame say it's one and a half inches he would put a lens in front of every frame on this camera i'm not explaining it very well so you'd have 125 frames long um little cheap plastic instamatic lenses he had and he'd set this in a piece of plastic and then he the shutter was made by a, a long piece of plastic the 125 frames long so it was about 15 foot long this it was like a, a little square tube 15 foot long and um the, each shutter was a slit which he cut so there's 125 slits and each slit had to travel about an inch from right to left or left to right and that was controlled with rubber bands so we had like a little trigger with rubber bands and if it needed to go a bit faster it had another rubber band it was absolutely <laughs> as crude as crude as that That's so what you'd do is you'd you'd carry this tube two people one on either end and you'd move along you'd have your action going on just just as normal live action person one end would just release a clip and that would fire the rubber bands and the shutter would go and it would move an inch. So we, did a, we didn't have time for a test, I don't think even. And it worked amazingly, but it was scratchy. Yeah. And, and everyone said, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because London's static without. So static, scratchy. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, and then they had the idea of the, of the static when you're tuning the radio and all of that. And it just came together and... We wanted to shoot one on the underground because there was obviously commuters. The breakfast show is all quite important to have for commuting. And we weren't allowed to film on the underground. And then Frank said, but no one will know this is a camera. How do they know this is a camera? And we said, you're right. So we did it. So we just went on as the public onto onto the um, underground with a few extras along with us and just shot this stuff. And we did the same at traffic lights and in traffic and in Trafalgar Square and all these places we could go to. The only The only slight issue was the aperture of the camera meant that we needed quite a lot of light because it, it wasn't a sophisticated camera and we were praying for really bright weather even though it was in it was sort of December January-ish I think but luckily we got one of those well, two days really crisp frosty mornings with with bright light um, there's a scene there's a scene we did on I think Westminster Bridge if you ever watch the ad again and if you look somebody loses his hat and oh, yeah. there's Robert Robert and Jay are the creatives and they're the they're the commuters in that scene. So Robert Savile, founder of Mother, Jay Jones, founder of Mother to be in their early days. There's a there's one for the 
for the spotters. Yeah. Um, that, that kind of brings me on to quite an interesting kind of element from a creative point of view where if you, so say their thing about static was just, hey, frozen London and Frank had found a way to shoot it so that everyone was just still, and it was interesting, but it wasn't what we just talked about. Um, what creators might want to know in sending a script to a really good director is how much do you have to have done and worked out yourself and how much is there a, a space for someone how much does Frank want or need a space for him to contribute himself or or even you as a producer to go okay so the script looks like this but we can elevate it three more marks out of ten by doing it like this yeah I mean and, and I'd like to think at, um, at, at Gorgeous which we'll come on to that that's what we always tried to do but I think it's. I think the the director's always looking for the for the idea, and right. if there's a kernel of the idea that's there, then it's they're looking for the best way to bring that out. And in that process, sometimes you take it on, uh, also sometimes you you lose the idea, but but really that's what you're trying to do. So I think when it when it's a technical one like this, it's the idea that's more important, and then you work out how to do it. I don't think you have to get too hung up about how to do it when you're writing the idea right as long as you're not trying to write something which is impossible but you might think oh people just you know are still in london is to i mean i know frank was earlier in his career at that point you might think oh this is too boring for a good director to take on what you know i think in some ways creatives hope that a creative a, a, a really good director will take it to another stage even if the idea Sometimes, you know, uh, you don't know what to send because you think, is there enough of an idea in here or not? And again, it's not so much about jumping forward, but I heard a rumor somewhere that one of the scripts Fred and Fareed sent, Frank, was people rub themselves in Levi's jeans. And that was the script. And that may or may not be 100% true. But I thought that was like them going, hey, Frank will do an incredible thing here of working out how the rubbing will be interesting. I think that's more or less true, actually, in that case. Um, they they had the concept and they said, you know, we can write little scenarios, but basically that's the idea and the rubbing. And we know if you're interested, you'll make something amazing from it. And then and they had lots of meetings. And those two were, were extraordinary salesmen. I love them dearly, by the way. And um, um, Yeah, but they were extraordinary salesmen. In the case of Robert and Jay with the capital script, they knew Frank and they had a sort of relationship with him anyway. And and probably were able to discuss possibilities. Okay, so um, I, I don't know where, where we are chronology exactly now, but say you're uh, a, a year or a few years into your relationship with Frank at Waylands. Um, are you getting a sense of building one of the more popular directors in the country slash world at that point, or is it actually, you know, you're trying to get on the on the the kind of short list of what would be you know, say Stellar or something like that that's out there. Is, is it a tricky thing to kind of build a career and make the, the commercials as well? In, in the days at Waylands, Frank shot quite, quite a bit. He was never very prolific, but he would shoot quite often. Um, so he'd do, say eight, eight, say, eight or nine jobs a year. But they were always of a standard. They were always good. Um, but obviously, as he started, he wasn't on the list of getting the, the re, as you say, the Stellars the, on, on that sort of really top list. You, you work your way towards that. But you, if, if you like, you're always dreaming of getting that. And you're always, as a producer, you're always trying to build the, the director's career, particularly if they're one you work with a lot. Um, my, my view as a producer then at Waylands, I remember, was the director would see a script he, she would like it or not like it, but but similarly as a producer, you'd see a script sometimes, and you'd you'd see the potential and think this one's really really good, and um, you'd you'd try anything you could to get it, and that might be through financial. It's it's a funny thing from the best scripts, you're you're always going to struggle on the money because they're so good. Whoever else has got them is going to see that as well, and yeah. that it's going to be tough on the money. So that was always the battle, just finding a way that you could realize the idea sufficiently for the budget but get but get the job right um so i don't know where we are now early mid 90s perhaps 
Yes. So, so um, ninety, I think about ninety six was when I left Waylands. And, and did did you go to Gorgeous? What happened there? No. So um, I was friends with Adrian Harrison, who was at RSA, and Adrian and I had shared an office at BMP, and we both used to talk about going to a production company one day and um, Adrian had left because he was doing a lot of the Foster's ads with Paul Hogan and John Miles, who was the director at RSA. So he had left and joined John at RSA just just as I then left and joined Mike at Waylands a few years later. Um, now Joe Godman was um, about to leave RSA and Ridley and Tony Scott were looking to re- for the replacement and they'd approached Adrian, who had been there by that stage for, I think, about six years. And he said, I wouldn't want to do it on my own because RSA was the largest company in London at the time. But um, I'd be very interested in, in doing it together with Paul Rothwell. <clears throat> you should meet him. So I'm losing my voice now. Um, so that was arranged and um, we met with Ridley and we were going to meet with Ridley and Tony. And I remember going off to meet them one Sunday morning in a hotel in London and saying to Adrian, so tell me a bit about, you know, you've told me about Ridley. Tell me a bit about Tony. What's he like? And Adrian said, I've never met him. And I said, you've been there six years. And he said, yeah, no, I've never met him. I've never seen him. And I went, oh, okay. Um, anyway, we met them and um, Tony was lovely. Ridley was the, was the, one who dealt with all that stuff, though Tony was sort of um, an important part of it, but but he was the younger brother, and Ridley get on with all of that stuff, right? And and so they offered me the job as well. So we um, we went about rebuilding RSA. Joe Godman was very much the face of RSA back then in London. Ridley and Tony lived in Los Angeles, and with her no longer there, that was a, a a strange situation and no one knew why she wasn't there all they knew was that she was no longer there and then these two um fresh-faced youths were suddenly being presented as the replacement so that was a you know an interesting time not the easiest of times but we set about rebuilding the company which which needed an awful lot done i thought and, and as a as a task i mean i guess it's it's funny because creatives, when you get really good, you get promoted to a job that's much more management than creativity. You're working with budgets and you're kind of hiring and firing and things like that. Do, do you feel any kind of sense of leaving the, the kind of nuts and bolts of actually creating commercials, you know, at, at the, the kind of, you know, uh, the thick end of that to running a company? Was that a big change? Yes, I think it was, and it, 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 you're absolutely right in what you say. It's a strange thing. You sort of you get promoted into the management role because you've probably been good at what you did before. So your instinct when you become the manager is to stick to what you know, what you're good at. But actually, for everybody else, they're not interested in that. They don't. That's not what they require of you. They need somebody to lead and manage, not somebody to be a good producer. Sure, you can help them with producing. But it's a different role. And it took me a little while to work that out. Um, and I did miss the day-to-day producing, certainly, um, cause, because I wasn't day-to-day producing. We did, we did the odd bit here and there. But mostly we were um, trying to rebuild and restructure the company. And, uh, you know, you, you said it, you, well, I mean, you imply that it, it, it worked to some degree. And obviously RSA... <laughs> is still going strong now. How, how was that time? Um, it, it did work. I mean, initially there was a bit of shell shock with the directors and the, it, the company felt to, to me when I joined and I was the outsider who was going to be more critical. It felt to me more or less like 15 production companies in one building. It was a beautiful big building. Every director had their own office, wow. their own producer, their own production manager, fax, phones, <laughs> um, the works. And there was very little synergy between these different offices. You could almost imagine two of them would be bidding against each other on a job. And I, I, I changed the building by opening it up to make a large production floor where everything was more open and shared. And um, 
streamlining the offices a bit. And that obviously suited some directors and, and didn't suit others. And then to, to sort of reinvent the company, Jake Scott had opened Black Dog in the US a year or so before. And we were keen to do that in the UK. So we did. So we set up the, the music video side and we we hired a young director called Chris Cunningham, who, who then over the next few years went on to do some of the most extraordinary work ever seen. Come to Daddy and Bjork and that. And Come to Daddy, he did while I was there. It was the first big thing he really did. Um, and that went on to win multiple pencils. So that, and that was at the time that sort of, help towards the the reinvention of rsa if you like um so but i only stayed a year so i can only take a tiny bit of credit for my involvement um that was adrian harrison but i left after a year um to to set up gorgeous with frank and chris now setup's wrong because chris had already set it up it already existed as a company and had had existed for a year or two but he persuaded frank and me to join as a, and it was it was then set up as a new company, a new gorgeous, um, but but obviously Chris set it up originally. Right. Uh, let me just go back one minute and say, yeah, what, what yeah. was it that about Chris Cunningham that made you? Did did you think he was he had it in him to do come to daddy and all is full of love when you or square pusher when you when you saw him at that stage? I tell you, you listen, you ne- you can never know. We met him. He was quite a shy. Um, guy but you sensed you sensed genius um he had these pictures which he showed us and um i remember looking at them and i said to him and they were of these models because his his background is he had been a model maker and he'd worked in um ron muick's studio making mm-hmm. in fact he'd worked on some i did this hyena job um with mike stevenson at wayland's years before where we we had to film with hyenas and we also built a prosthetic hyena through ron muick's shop and it turned out chris had worked on that because we were having a chat one day he said i did that hyena anyway um chris showed us these um photographs and and i said what are these photos of and he said oh they're they're drawings, they're not photos. And I said, you, you drew these? Wow. And he said, yeah. And, and I, that was the one thing where literally your jaw dropped and you went, oh, my God. And he told us this story. So we said, what had you been working on? So um, Stanley Kubrick had employed him to build, <laughs> to, build <laughs> right. to build this little robot boy, if you like. And Stanley Kubrick was working on this script, AI, Artificial yeah. Intelligence, um, which he was never to make. Um, and he found Chris and he said, can you build this? I want it to be a lifelike <clears throat> little boy. So Chris had started working on it and he'd get to a point where he couldn't go any further without this or this or this. And we said, what was Kubrick like? Was he notoriously impatient? He said, no, no. He was the most patient guy he ever met. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, whatever I said I needed, however long it took, it didn't matter. He'd say, that's fine. So he was, I think he, he worked in a shed at, um, Kubrick lived up near Elstree. He worked in a shed on his estate building this thing he showed us. That's right. It was it was a photograph of a of this working animatronic. And we realized that it was a real thing. And it was so lifelike. Um, and he was on this for over a year. And eventually he, he had to leave. And I won't, I'm probably not allowed to say how he, how he left. That's a story for Chris to tell. But um, he left that process, which is fascinating. Anyway, the film actually did end up getting made and they approached Chris about it at the time. And he said, no, thanks. But clearly he, he was a very gifted in that, that whole animatronic area. Wow. Um, yeah, I heard, I heard AI didn't happen under Kubrick because going back to the story you told earlier, he was waiting for the technology to catch up enough yeah, that it would yeah. be able to realise his vision. Um, yes, that makes sense. And obviously Spielberg did what Spielberg did, and it, it isn't what Kubrick would have done, but hey, whatever. Um, well, that's fascinating because, I mean, I think when you see Chris Cunningham's work, he's totally of a piece. Like, there's no one else really like 
him. But I think when, when now you're explaining all that um, because uh, Mark Denton was friends with Ron Muick at that time before he became Ron Muick the artist. But when you see yes. when you see Ron's artistic work, he creates photorealistic sculptures that I saw a pregnant woman one that he did that were, you know, you can see the veins under the skin and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So is that a life size or it was, it was, a, it was a big bigger, one. It was like eight bigger, or nine yeah. feet tall. They're amazing, aren't they? Yeah. That's amazing. So it's, yeah, it's funny that the, uh, the world, those two might've, yeah. but then when Chris worked on, say come to daddy, it was almost like an animator because he, he would have this whole sheet. And, it, and if you listen to Apex twins, the music, mm. it's extraordinary music. But it's there's all these tiny little sounds going on in the background, and and Chris would the video would react to every single tiny little sound, but but you'd have this huge sort of like animated spreadsheet of of all these sounds, and they came in, and and it's that's why the visuals pick up on all these extraordinary sounds. So you so you hear the music completely differently, I think, when you when you watch it with Chris's visuals. And and the the darkness of Come to Daddy. I mean, in, it's probably the most terrifying music video I've ever seen. But yeah, and it's yeah. not just that creature, but it's the the kids going around with the vo- the, the face of the Apex Twin. Um, it's kind of amazing for a pop promo at that time. Absolutely. And and by the way, I've just thought the reason we took Chris Cunningham on was because Ted Thornton um, was employed as the head of Black Dog. Jake knew Ted music video producer so ted headed up black dog and ted said there's this guy chris cunningham i think is really interesting and and ted absolutely takes the credit for seeing the potential in chris um and i I want to make that clear cool um just on a practical note i I realize it's getting to it's 10 10 21 my time 6 21 your time and we we haven't actually started gorgeous yet so i I, I just want to say that Anytime you want or need to jump off, or if I'm taking too much of your time, Fine. please let me know and we can stop. But I, I don't want to not do justice to what we're about to talk about. Yeah, it? yeah, okay. Um, um, I'm happy to carry on for now. If the voice starts getting too croaky, then we can stop. And if I've, I probably have to leave in about 20 minutes or so. But we can we can carry on again tomorrow or something, depending on your schedule. Oh yeah, well maybe that that might be good. I mean, in in some ways, I mean, I'm not saying this is like a, the best time. Maybe, maybe we should talk about how Gorgeous began, and then we can talk about the work a little bit more afterwards. But but so okay. Chris, did Chris approach you and Frank separately, or in a, some ways as a package, or how did that work? Chris and Frank had been friends for for quite a few years. Um, funny enough, Frank and I had done a job when Frank when we were at Wayland's for British Telecom. It was written by Andy Mackay. I'm trying to think who else. It was Andy Mackay and Tony Barry. That's it. And um, they'd written these two ads for British Telecom. One was for a fax machine, this new thing, the fax machine. And a guy's going to, I think he's got to drive from London to Birmingham or Birmingham to London, but he goes through Spaghetti Junction. He's going to get lost. So somebody faxes him instructions on how to get there. For some reason, in one of the offices, Frank had this idea of putting a, a big, you know, those um, cityscape wallpapers you can get, like oh, yeah. Manhattan or a forest, one of those. He said, let's, we, we were, we had to build an office in a, you know, disused warehouse near a location, as you do when you're shooting on, on location sometimes. And we, we, Frank said, could I have one of those Manhattan skylines? behind the window so we put it up just like as a, as a bit of office wallpaper nothing more made the ad when it went out people started getting confused because they thought the guy was in new york because it was <laughs> new york behind him which in truth no one had thought of at the time but the creative director wasn't too happy about it this was chris yeah and um and then there was there was another one we did and um anyway that was the first time we all worked together where Chris was great director and Frank and I were working together, but Frank knew him socially anyway. And they had talked, I believe, um, over the years about doing something together. Chris had meanwhile set up his production company, Gorgeous, a couple of years before. And um, then I bumped into Frank one day. I went to a dinner somewhere and I just bumped into him. I hadn't seen him for about nine months. And I said, you know, how are you? And I said as a joke, 
are you, have you set up your production company yet? Um, and I said it as a joke because I think I said to you before, we talked about this. It was literally 12 years ago we talked about um, him setting up a production company. I don't think we've talked about it since. But anyway, I just say to him, I don't know why I said it. I said, um, you know, you set up your production company yet? And he said, he said, yeah. He said, yeah, it's funny you should say that because well, I've been talking to Chris and, and um, we, well, we were wondering if you'd, you'd, you'd want to come and join us. And I went, oh, um, blimey, you know. I guess that's a yes then. So, so you know instantly, of course, I'm, you know, if Frank's doing a company, I'm, I'm going to, and it's going to be my company now, not running somebody else's company. Of, of course, I'm going to want to do it. Um, I believe they'd been talking to James. Um, Stardom? Not Stardom, no. James, who um, set up 750. Um Sound Studio. I can't believe I can't think of his surname now. Sorry, James. It'll come to me. Um, and and because Chris had worked with him at Red Wing, right. and he had been a producer there, and Chris had been directing stuff through Red Wing when he was a creative at the agency. Um, but that hadn't worked out. So then they they approached me. Um, so somewhere there's this this like the Ringo drummer, the the guy Ringo re- replaced at the very beginning. There's <laughs> I'm Ringo. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but you, I mean, wh- whether you were satisfied with the situation at RSA or not uh, at that time, you're kind of taking a leap into, I know it's not the unknown because you've worked with Frank and obviously you know Frank and Chris are both very good, um, but w- was it was there any kind of, should I be doing this or not, thoughts about it? The, the, the hard thing was, and originally I said, you know, I'll, I'll think about it because I haven't been at RSA long enough to do what I want to do. Um, th- th- there's that whole side of it. But on the other side, it, you know, by this stage, I, I go back with Frank now quite a long way. Yeah. Um, at least at least 12 years already I've, I've worked with him um, and known of him even longer than that. And it's, it's quite hard. And a lot of the best ads I'd ever worked on had been with him, not only because there were a lot of great directors at Wayland's, but um, it's quite hard to not take that opportunity when it presented itself. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could give us a bit of an insight into... Say, I also, mean... I, felt, I felt that at RSA, we'd done a, a year of change and Adrian was perfectly capable of doing it on his own now right. if he hadn't felt confident to do that initially a year in and having made these changes I thought you know he can definitely do it so that made it easier if you like I didn't feel I was abandoning a project without anyone at, at the helm that makes sense um and, and so just looking at the difference between say and I know they've been a bit in between but Wayland's and your own place Obviously, there are pros and cons to, to both sides. Um, I'm I, I just wondering, like, because some people, uh, uh, and when it comes to, say, starting an agency, go, I just don't want to do it. It just sounds like too much of a, a headache. Um, you know, what's, what do I get out of it compared to being a, a creative in this large company where everything's organized for me from, you know, employee contracts and tax and whatever else it happens to be? And going and doing your own thing is clearly more complicated and difficult, but there are lots of other positive freedoms and probably financial benefits too. So could you explain a little bit about the, the, you know, the reason why you would go from probably a good situation at Wayland's to something like this? Yeah. Um, good, good situation at RSA. Well, yeah. But I mean, I mean the, the, the Frank and you thing at Wayland still worked well as it were. I mean, Frank wants to leave and have his own place and Chris has his own place, and you want to have your own place. And despite the RSA gap in between, you know, what would what was wrong with continuing at someone else's production company? I, I suppose that in a way that's the hard bit because RSA was great, and Ridley and Tony, it was so good to us, and everything we wanted to do, they were supportive. We we couldn't have asked for more. There was no clashing of horns, nothing like that. Um, it was just the the lure of working with Frank again, probably partly producing for Frank again, because that was the bit I was probably missing most. I wasn't producing as much, um, although you know, I'm sure I would have produced more. And and then, yeah, the, the thrill and the challenge of doing it yourself. In a way, the logistics of running a company 
perhaps slightly less daunting to a producer where that's closer to what you do anyway than it might be to to some professions where it's very different to what you do um and and when your two partners are going to be directors there's an assumption that you know certain aspects of it you're going to be dealing with that's not really what they're there to do and that's that's understood they're there to produce the most amazing work possible and through that the company and then um become ever more successful okay um and because Chris had started up his own thing before, well, it started gorgeous before. Um, what was the kind of dynamic between, say, the three of you in terms of what the company was going to be and how it was going to present itself? Well, Chris, from the start, he's always very open, very generous, um, very welcoming, and it was it was absolutely. It's now our company. There was there was no sense of it was his company and we were just you know tread lightly so that was great he was thrilled to have frank there because i think he'd always wanted to set up with frank um him and i didn't know each other that well probably at this stage but we got on really well so it 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 worked and i think it was you know chris was doing amazing work by that stage frank was doing amazing work but what was great is that they they both were nowhere near their peak yet and they both rose in stature i think I think they probably rose in stature for having a company, for having a really successful company. And so the success of one helped the success of the other in, in terms of how people see them and their stature elsewhere. That, that's interesting. That touches on something I wanted to ask you both from Wayland and at RSA, because the, the thing you said at RSA about, you know, two different directors might be bidding on the same job um, and, when you have a good production company, particularly when you have two very sought-after directors like that, um, the the concept of board flow, which if anyone's listened to this may not understand, that <laughs> when a script comes into a production company, um, maybe Frank turns it down, but it goes somewhere else, and, and not necessarily because the other person's worse or different. They may just read it and go, oh, well, hang on, I can see something I could do with this that maybe uh, isn't what Frank wants to do right now. So... Um, when it came to that, was there any any sort of uh, also from a creative point of view, you're kind of going, we want to send it to Chris and Frank, and then your producer would go, you can't, they're both at gorgeous, that doesn't work, yeah. and you kind yeah. of go, hang on, but they'd both be really good for this. I'd like to know how, how did that work from your point of view? It, we we didn't um we would never bid directors against each other, so and, and I know some companies would do. We we preferred not to, but as you say, the main thing is is getting the board in in the first place. If it's coming in for Frank, which a lot of scripts do, um, the chances are he's going to pass on it because he he would do three or four jobs a year. I think his average over a 10-year period was 3.4 jobs or something. Right. It's a tiny amount, and people will be amazed when they hear that given how much famous stuff he did. Chris, Chris was more prolific in his early years, but he also did less and less, but it was always great stuff that he did. Um, yeah, sometimes it was, if not Chris, then um, if Chris doesn't like it, or Frank like it, and sometimes the other way around. But, and that did happen sometimes, but not all the time. So they weren't always, you know, sometimes it would be Frank or Danny, and, you know, the, the, there's a, Jonathan, there's always the usual suspects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's also interesting when you've got a company like Gorgeous where, I don't know, I'd say that, that just taking Chris and Frank as examples, they both able, they're both able to take on style and humour and maybe smaller things and bigger things and whatever. So, you know, there's a big range going on there. So you might go, I've got a good script. I'd like to see what Frank or Chris and then ultimately maybe Danny or Jonathan um, could, could do with it. But I think what's, what's kind of fascinating is it's not like you went, <clears throat> okay, we've got a comedy director, we've got a style director, we've got a cool director, we've got a big production international director. So it, it must have been interesting for the, the scripts that are coming in. And I, I don't, I don't know where your fax machine was positioned, or if, or if it even ended up like this. But I assume they all chatted at lunchtime and said, "Has anyone sent you anything recently?" Oh yeah, there's this and whatever. So did that work as a geeing each other on dynamic, or was it a little bit awkward sometimes? It's 
yeah, it's interesting you say that. It it can be it can be very awkward, and, and in in an ideal situation, you have this um, you have this company where all the directors come in, much as they would to an agency. There'll be scripts. They have them. They talk about them. They discuss them. They discuss ideas. I'll do that one. I'll do that one. You always hear tractor work like that. I could never work out how they made it work. Yeah. And all credit to them that they did. In practice, um, there's a little bit of envy. You know, if they've got that script or they've got this script. So they can be a bit cagey about what they've got. And it can be a bit awkward because if a script comes in for Chris and he passes on it and then it goes to Frank, Frank doesn't particularly want to know that Chris has passed on it. <laughs> yeah. Frank wants to think he's the person they wanted to direct the script yeah. and vice versa. And the same with any of the other directors at, at, well, at Gorgeous or any company. So that's slightly difficult. And you, it's why we never bid them against each other. And I'd generally not say unless they asked <laughs> and they would generally not ask because in truth, they'd probably rather not, not know. But they're not saying like, what was great was when they would all talk openly about yeah. scripts and some directors came in all the time and others didn't really come in. So, so Chris was always the, the heart and soul and the focus in the company. He was always there. He was always jumping up and down, loving to discuss ideas with anyone. Um, and Vince, when he joined was, was great at that with him. Tom Carty, um, used to chat about stuff with Chris. Frank was rarely around. Frank didn't come in. Um, so you didn't really see him. Peter Thwaites came in a lot. Peter would Peter would chat. Um, I loved it when they were all chatting about ideas. That's great. Um, now that as, as we're coming to that end of that twenty minutes window that you said, yeah. we could maybe do this again and talk about the work um, tomorrow or, or when you're next free. That seems like a good time to kind of pause and uh, and, and maybe pick it up again at another occasion if that's cool with you. That's fine. 